And our practice here of receptive awareness is really just exploring this. The simplicity of being with experience. And noticing what complicates that simplicity. There's a very famous teaching in the suttas. Most of you have probably heard it many times. But that is what I'd like to explore this evening, the teachings, the Buddhist teachings to Bahia. To me, this teaching, this simple teaching, it is one of those succinct teachings where Bahia asks the Buddha, please tell me the teachings in brief so that I can practice. And um, this succinct, this particular succinct teaching feels to me very resonant with the way that we practice in this particular style. So the uh, the kind of backstory before Bahia meets the Buddha, he's uh, he's not a He's not a, um, one of the Buddha's followers, but he's an ascetic at the time of the Buddha. And he's practicing on the coast some about 12, 1,200 miles or so from where the Buddha lives. And he doesn't know anything about the Buddha. But he's been practicing... Some, some of the stories say that basically he, he was kind of, you know living an ascetic life, but not really doing that much practice. But I think, based on the story, it seems to me like he must have been doing some practice, because the teachings of the Buddha landed really fast for Bahia. So he must have been, must have been ready for it, at least. So he was, he was practicing, and um, uh, the people in that area really admired him. He was such an ascetic, he was wearing, he was wearing bark, uh, for his clothes, so he was he was doing some of the ascetic practices of the day, and they were offering him alms and coming to him for advice. And um, he started wondering, "Gee, all these people think I'm so great. Maybe I am that great. Maybe I'm enlightened." And it said that um, he was visited by a deva when he had that thought. And this deva apparently. Uh, was said to be one of his relatives from either a previous life or from this life, doesn't say. And uh, this, uh, this deva kind of had taken pity on Bahia for having this thought, maybe I'm enlightened, and uh, said to Bahia, you know, you're not enlightened. And not only that, you're not even doing what might make you enlightened. And, the, and Bahia asked the deva, well, what, is, there, is there anybody that is doing this? And he says, yeah, you should go see the Buddha. <laughs> the Buddha lives about 1,200 miles from here. Go find him. He's in Savati. And so he walked, and I actually, on Google today, I looked walking, you know, I hit the, the, the walk icon. <laughs> and said, you know, the place where Bahia was at the coast, which is um, near Mumbai, I think. Um, 
and then to Savati, where the Buddha was, and it said 303 hours of walking to get there. And it was a lot of elevation, too. Like it said, I wasn't really able to find the mountain ranges, but in one place it said it was like 12,000 feet of elevation that he'd have to go up and down to get to the Buddha, to go this route. So uh, he, he traveled, and he apparently traveled as quickly as he could. So um, my guess is it probably took him some 20 to 30 days to get to the Buddha, something like that. So he got to where the Buddha was um, practicing. He found the monastery where the Buddha was staying, and uh, the monks in the monastery said, well, the Buddha's not here right now. He's out on alms round. And so uh, Bahia went to find the Buddha on alms round. And he found the Buddha in the village and said to him, will you teach me the Dharma so that, I can, so that it will be for my long-term welfare and benefit? And the Buddha, with his alms bowl, walking into the uh, village, said, this isn't the time, Bahia. We're, we're heading to the village for alms. And the second time, Bahia asked the Buddha, this time he added a little plea. He said, please teach me the Dharma. We don't know how long you will live or how long I will live. Please teach me the Dharma. And uh, the Buddha again said, this is not the time. But then Bahia asked the magic third time, which in, uh, in the suttas this is, Pretty much almost every time, not every time, but most times if you ask the Buddha something three times, he did it. So he asked again, and the Buddha stopped and gave Bahia some teachings. And Bahia had asked for teachings in brief, and so he got some teachings in brief. So I'm going to read you the first part of the teachings that he gave to Bahia. And... Um, the, re- the results of the Buddha giving Bahia this instruction, the whole thing, not just the little part I'm going to give you, but I'm going to kind of give it to you in pieces. But The result of the Buddha giving this instruction to Bahia was that Bahia became fully en- enlightened. So, listen well. <laughs> Bahia. You should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. This is basically what we're doing here. We're exploring our experience, our sense experience, our mental experience. This teaching, you should train yourself thus, and the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard, and the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized is only the cognized. This is a short form for the six sense spaces. Seeing, hearing, and then sensing encompasses smelling, tasting, touching. And then cognized is the mind. 
And so recognizing, essentially, this is kind of the injunction, recognize your sense experience as a rising experience. That's one way to frame what the Buddha said. But what do these mean? What does this, this teaching mean? In the scene is only the scene. It can be understood to be kind of the, a training in, in what might be called bare attention, just receiving experience as it is, without judgment, without reactivity, without clinging. And yet it says it's a training. And so what does that mean, to train ourselves to see thus? Train ourselves in the scene is only the scene. To me, this means partly that we, you know, we're probably not going to be able to just pick up that instruction and have our, our experience be that pure, that unaffected by our thoughts, our ideas, our views, our opinions. We're not going to be able to just like flip a switch and and have our experience be in the scene as only the scene. We may think we're seeing things as they are, but as we've been exploring, especially around the conditioning, the constructing nature of the mind and the, the mental formations condition our perceptions, condition seeing, condition hearing. And so it's already when we're seeing, it's already not just in the scene is only the scene. And so what does this training mean? To me, it's like kind of a pointing to, okay, so this is, this is a, a, an important direction for us. It's like we, we, we set our intention to explore experience with the understanding that it's valuable to see experience in this way. And the Buddha, in, in the subsequent part of the teachings, explains why it's valuable. I'll actually go ahead and read it now and then, and then elaborate a little bit more on that later. And so, the training is what I, I said. In the scene is only the scene. We train in this way. And then the Buddha says, when for you this is the case. When for you, there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there's no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And so he points to the purpose of this training. He doesn't just say, train this way, come back later. Just train this way, and this is, is, is the result. Freedom from suffering is the result. That, that results from this, basically the understanding of not-self. But this last part is the result of the training. It's not something to do. 
but it kind of, it sets our compass. And so we may have some inspiration to explore what might it mean? You know, what might it mean to see experience in this way? So there's a kind of a setting of the intention to explore experience from the perspective of in the scene is only the scene, which to me basically points to a practice that explores what's in the way of in the scene is only the scene. What's in the way of in the herd is only the herd. And that's what we get to see actually. We start, we we pay attention to our experience. This is so much of what we've been seeing. What's in the way of just knowing experience to be experience, knowing seeing to be seeing, knowing hearing to be hearing, knowing cognizing to be cognizing. And so we start by seeing what we add, looking at what we add to experience. And this is what we've been seeing. We see how craving is added to experience. We feel that it is added, actually, as we explore experience in this way of receiving, just noticing what's happening. We're seeing the constructions. We're seeing the, the craving, the clinging. And we're feeling the suffering of that. And so with this, this encouragement, uh, you know, in this direction lies freedom from suffering. We may have some inspiration to observe this. What else gets in the way? Views, beliefs, identity. We've talked about all of these areas. And guess what? All of this, everything that gets in the way, all of the stuff that gets in the way is in the realm of cognized. What's cognized? Craving is an arising in the mind. It's a cognition arising. And so the instruction in the cognized is only the cognized. Can you notice craving is arising as a phenomenon? Can you notice clinging is arising as a phenomenon? When that's what's happening, that's the encouragement of this text. And so we explore in the scene is only the scene and we see craving. It's like, okay, craving. In craving is craving. Craving is arising. That can be known. And the cognized is only the cognized. In another sutta, the Buddha kind of um, described in a way, at least this, this teaching to me is, it's, uh, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya, this teaching. It's um, Anguttara 4.24, for those of you who are interested in such things. The Kalakarama Sutta. And he basically, in that sutta, describes what it was like to be experiencing things 
What's the state? He gives a description of his mind. What it's like to be experiencing things in the moment when in the scene is only the scene. He gives a little bit of an elaboration of it, of what that experience is. And so I'll read it and then like, see if we can understand something about that mind a little bit through those words anyway. The Buddha thought it was valuable to describe this state to us. And so he describes his experience when he refers to himself as a Tathagata, meaning one who's thus gone, one who is such, something like that. A Tathagata does not conceive of a visible thing apart from sight, does not conceive of an unseen, does not conceive of a thing worth seeing, does not conceive of a seer. In the seen is only the seen. A Tathagata does not conceive of a visible thing apart from sight, does not conceive of an unseen, does not conceive of a thing worth seeing, does not conceive of a seer. And the herd is only the herd. A Tathagata does not conceive of an audible thing apart from hearing, does not conceive of an unheard, does not conceive of a thing worth hearing, does not conceive of a hearer. In the sensed is only the sensed. A Tathagata does not conceive a thing to be sensed apart from sensation, does not conceive of an unsensed, does not conceive of a thing worth sensing, does not conceive of a sensor. And the cognized is only the cognized. A Tathagata does not conceive of a cognizable thing apart from cognition, does not conceive of an uncognized, does not conceive of a thing worth cognizing, does not conceive of a cognizer. Let us start kind of an exploration of what this might mean. And I can only like offer you some of my reflections on this. There's a few comments in some of the commentaries and suttas, but there's not a lot. But one a key word in here is conceiving. Remember the other day I used that phrase, offered this phrase in one of the morning meditations. In whatever way they conceive, the fact is ever other than that. Conceiving is understood in many places in the suttas to be a kind of a a distorted way of experiencing that attributes stuff to the experience that is not in the experience.
but is instead, it's said in, Bhikkhu Bodhi said it's a, it's derived from its own subjective imaginings. And it, it does seem to relate to this kind of birth of subject to object, like the birth of a thing to be seen, an object existing, something like that. When an object exists, a subject is born. They, they're kind of born together, is my sense. And so the conceiving piece, the, one of the, the distortions that seems to be in that is a subject-object distinction and a belief in that. So from the, the suttas, I'm giving you kind of a, a tour of some of the suttas tonight. It's one of my particular joys is a sutta study, so I'm giving you a little taste of that. Um, there's another place in the suttas. We'll come back to this description of the Buddha's mind in a moment, but I'm going to flip to the other side, which describes what an ordinary person's mind does with experience, with seeing, with hearing. So here's the description in the suttas of that. This is from Majjhima 1, from those, for those of you who like that. One perceives the scene as the scene. Having perceived the scene as the scene, one conceives oneself as the scene. One conceives oneself in the scene. One conceives oneself apart from the scene. One conceives the scene to be mine. One delights in the scene. Why is this? Because it has not been fully understood. And so there's, there's four different ways of conceiving here that are elaborated. I am whatever experience it is. I am the seeing. I am the body. I am the emotion. It's got that kind of flavor to it. I am in the experience. I'm in the body. I'm just dropping in a few that might kind of resonate, might not resonate. I'm in the seeing, but I'm in physical, I'm in the physical experience. Maybe. I'm separate from the experience. Now that one, that one resonates for me for seeing, right? It's like, yeah, I'm separate from that tree. Again, pointing to this subject-object distinction or this flavor of this thing, this experience is mine. This, this hearing is mine or, or this body sensation, that's probably one more. more. You know, this knee pain, that's mine. It's my knee pain. My body sensations. So these, these different ways of conceiving ourselves in relationship to experience. So again, it's, it's bringing in this notion of, of, of a self, subject-object kind of distinction. One um, 
translator of this particular uh, text, the, the precursor to Bhikkhu Bodhi, Bhikkhu Nanamoli, had a different, slightly different understanding that I noticed today for the first time in, in one of the notes to the sutta. That to me is like, oh yeah, this, this resonates for me. So it added something to the picture in terms of understanding conceiving in a way. It, it, does, it does make sense to me that conceiving is about this sense of subject-object coming, coming into being. But this one had a subtler, a kind of subtler perspective that I've, I've, I think I've seen in my experience. And it's like, yeah, there's something there, something interesting there. So Nanamoli, his alternative understanding um, is something like, so having perceived the scene, the way he translates it's something like, having perceived the scene, one takes that perception to be the scene. That's a pretty profound kind of confusion that I think we do a lot. We don't notice that we're perceiving tree. We don't notice perception at all. We take the perception to be the thing. This, this is a, it's, it's a very profound misunderstanding, a misunderstanding of perception. And so to me, this, this was a, a very interesting way to think about conceiving potentially as just being misperceiving perception to be reality, essentially, something like that. Almost even before any sense of self comes in. Just that mistaken, mistake in the perception. And we take it to be what's actually there. Not seeing it as perception. Not seeing perception as perception. That would be in the cognized is only the cognized. Oh, perception is happening. So back to the Buddhist description of his mind. A Tathagata does not conceive of a visible thing apart from sight does not conceive of an unseen, does not conceive of a thing worth seeing, does not conceive of a seer. My reflections on this does not conceive of a visible thing as apart from sight. So to me what this says is the conceiving part, you know, the conceiving part is is attributing or or kind of creating or conceiving of the idea of a thing that exists independently of the perception. So this is kind of counterintuitive to the whole way we live our lives and walk around the world. You know, it's a, to, to, to live in that space of so deeply understanding that we cannot know what is out there, 
even if there's anything out there, all we can know is the experience created by the mind. And so not conceiving of anything that is out there. This is the Buddha's description of his experience. Not conceiving of a visible thing apart from sight. That's kind of mind-blowing to me. Does not conceive of an unseen. This one I could find very little to support uh, an interpretation or an understanding of, but just the, the way of hearing it and also that it follows the previous one does not conceive of a visible thing apart from sight, does not conceive of an unseen. To me, this might mean that we also don't conceive or create the idea or the notion, the imagining. And and imagining is another translation for this word conceiving. Um, Does not imagine that there is nothing out there that it is all mind, entirely constructed by the mind. So doesn't, the the mind of the Buddha doesn't conceive any kind of substantive reality about the world itself. That's my kind of sense of the understanding of these two. But simply understands the experience this, the, the experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, cognizing. I hope this is kind of making sense. <laughs> and does not conceive of a thing worth seeing. To me, this points to craving. A thing worth seeing is something that we'd want. We'd want to have. So that may be the flavor there. One does not conceive of a seer. That points back to a belief in one who sees. A belief in the, you know, or the, the, the absence of a belief in one who sees here. Does not conceive of a seer. does not conceive of one who sees. So the absence of all of these things, this again is a kind of interesting to me, the Buddha describes his experience, this kind of very subtle experience, not in terms of what's there, but in terms of what is not experienced. Tathagata does not conceive of a cognizable thing apart from cognition. Does not conceive of an uncognized. Does not conceive of a thing worth cognizing. Does not conceive of a cognizer. In a way this feels like it kind of pulls apart or just like falls apart 
our, 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 usual, our whole usual way of navigating experience. And that all falls apart. It's, it kind of feels untethered. And so there might be, the other day Carol spoke about disenchantment. You know, if this perspective of seeing this way, not seeing a thing worth seeing, but just in the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard, and the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized is only the cognized. This creates the conditions for basically understanding there's, there's nothing to cling to. There's no point in clinging. And so this disenchantment, we have been enchanted by seeing. Oh, it's a thing worth seeing. Oh, there's a seer. Enchanted in that way believing the constructs of our own mind. It's just a magic show in there. Another beautiful analogy in the suttas. It's a magic show and we've been enchanted by that magic show, believing it's reality when it's just smoke and mirrors. And yet, you know, so disenchantment, there's one description that Bhikkhu Bodha uses for disenchantment, something like, oh, Disenchantment is like a serene withdrawal from the desire for clinging. Or, and it's like, well, in my experience, it's not quite that serene. <laughs> you know, it's like the mind goes kicking and screaming to disenchantment. That's like, we see there's not much. We begin, to, we begin to understand it's not worth clinging to. And it's like, no, there's got to be something worth clinging to. This is not okay to not have some place to land. And so there are kind of um, mental arisings in response to this as we begin to see in this way, as we begin to see in the seen is only the seen and the heard is only the heard. The mind kind of goes, well, Really? There's nothing to cling to? Oh, that doesn't feel so good. It can feel like dread or confusion or terror or sometimes boredom or depression. It's like, yeah, yeah, I get that it's not worth clinging to, so why do I keep being impinged on by seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching? Can it stop already? And so we, we have these relationships to these understandings. And those are arisings that need to be known. In the cognized is only the cognized. That's just the next thing. Oh. Not liking nowhere to land. Okay. Might be more than not liking. It might be dread or terror of Nowhere to land. Okay, dread. That's what's arising. And the cognized is only the cognized. This deconstructs every 
thing that we could possibly cling to. And so our practice is, at least my sense of this, at least one one way to explore this. And the Buddha was pretty concise in this teaching. He didn't offer a lot to Bahia. But to me, it's a pointing to look at experience. In particular, looking at the processes of mind that are constructing experience. The aggregates, the five aggregates that I spoke about a couple weeks ago, body, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, those are what's arising moment to moment. And they keep arising. My understanding is that the Buddha was still perceiving and feeling. There are descriptions in the sutta of enlightened beings perceiving and feeling. And so these processes, enlightenment doesn't turn them off. But they, my sense of what the Buddha is describing is that they are understood for what they are. They're understood as processes. Feeling arising and being known. Perception arising and being known. Craving arising and being known. Love arising and being known. Releasing of craving. Experienced. And so we can at least start there. Uh, exploring in our experience what's arising, what's being added. Recognizing these processes at work as processes. Feeling feels, perceiving perceives, Cognizing cognizes. So back to the Bahia Sutta again, the ending of that. When for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. There will be no you in terms of that. No you in terms of seeing. No you in terms of hearing. No conceiving of a seer apart from sight. No conceiving of a seer. No you there. 
feeling feels, knowing knows, cognizing, cognizing, perceiving, perceives, intending, intends, You are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Freedom comes with this understanding. To me, this is inspiring, in a way, the, the pointing in this teaching of, here's the training It leads to the freedom from suffering. But you don't have to believe that. When for you, in the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard, and the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized is only the cognized. When that, the mind opens to that way of meeting experience, There's no need to do any kind of insight or understanding. That is the natural result. One for you, this is the experience. One for you, this is the way the mind is meeting experience. The mind is free. So our basic instructions come back again just to the simplicity of knowing experience as experience arising in the present moment. Just what we're doing. Just simple. And and if to me it's like these successive layers of seeing, oh yeah, whoa, another way of attributing sense of self here. Another way of recognizing that Oh, clinging to that too? It's just, as we practice with this, it's like, you know, the layers, layers and layers and layers of delusion begin to fall away. It doesn't seem to happen in one big bang explosion. In fact, the Buddha often talked about the gradual nature of this, te- of this path, that it happens moment by moment, grain by grain. The analogy of the rope, I think I used that in the hall the other day, the rope that's left on the shore day by day, being worn away by the sun, the sand, the wind, the waves. A particular moment, if you look at it, you're not going to see the next moment what's worn away. But over time, that natural action wears away at the rope and it falls apart. And likewise, he compares in that analogy, he compares the mindfulness and the effort and the practice to the wind and the sun and the sand, wearing away at the fetters, wearing away at the the delusion. This is a picture of a gradual practice. One that we may not even see day to day what has been released, what has been understood even. 
You may not know. And yet, every moment of mindfulness, Gil Fronstel sometimes says, no moment of mindfulness is wasted. It is contributing to this direction of freedom. So the end of the sutta, almost immediately after he's heard this teaching, it says that in the hearing of the teaching, Bahia became fully awakened. And then within moments, He apparently came between a cow, a mother cow and her calf, and was killed by the cow, protecting the perceived threat against her calf. And so this brings me back to Bahia's kind of her to the Buddha. Please, we don't know how long we're going to live. Teach me the Dharma kind of the urgency of practice. While it is a gradual practice, there's no time to waste. We don't know what the next moment will bring. You should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you, there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the heard in reference to the heard. Only the sensed in reference to the sensed only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here, nor yonder, nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Let's sit for few moments.
Let's chant the sharing of blessings together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.